and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Our scripture this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So I recently had the opportunity to accompany my husband on a work trip abroad. And our European hosts were eager to hear from us how we were feeling about our country right now. Imagine that. And I found myself saying that I was feeling pretty anxious. I'm worried, I told them, that the institutions and social systems that I have counted on feel very tenuous. And I was thinking of our political system, our judicial system, I'll keep going, our education system, our healthcare system, our ecosystem. I'm not sure sometimes that they're going to hold up to all the fracturing that's going on and feel so widespread. Now I want to admit that I come at this from a very privileged position. Part of the disease that I am feeling, the discomfort, comes because to some degree or another, These systems have worked for me. And I want to acknowledge that there are many in our country for whom these systems have been failing for years, if not generations. And the level of threat, the sense of threat that they are experiencing is perhaps even more acute than my own. But this notwithstanding, Is it true, would you join me in saying that we're all carrying a lot of anxiety about our country right now? Our current Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, spoke about this anxiety in a recent interview I listened to. And he shared that both home and, interestingly, abroad as well, the people that he is speaking to and meeting with 
almost universally are feeling worried. They're feeling anxious and pessimistic about the future. And while the current pandemic and the global realities and our economic, um, the economic issues that we're facing are part of this, he believes that there are actually some deeper forces at play and that this worry has been brewing for a while. And he lists four sources of this undercurrent of anxiety that's been growing, and they're going to all sound familiar. The first is the rapid pace of social and technological change that we are living through. Our technology is evolving and developing faster than we can figure out how to use it well. And yet we can't put it down. Even though we know it's disrupting the social fabric and our personal well-being. He's also concerned that so much of what comes to us through our devices and through the larger media landscape is so negative. It's so hard to know that there is so much good going on around us in the world. The third thing he names is our loss of capacity for civil discourse and dialogue. So we are less and less able to work through our challenges and our differences. And he notes that we're more focused on the positions that people are taking and the words they're using than their intentions. So we can't even find the common ground that is among us. And finally, the fourth source of our collective anxiety, and to Murthy, the most concerning, is the growing rate of loneliness and isolation in our country. More than half of Americans report feeling lonely. And the numbers are greatest among young people. He is also, con he is so concerned about this that he considers it a public health threat. The ground beneath us feels unstable. And we are losing confidence in ourselves, in our leaders, and in our institutions to change this. And it is a recipe for despair. And it's hard to feel hopeful sometimes. Now, this little card was put on my uh, windshield while I was shopping at the Kroger on North Decatur Road. And gosh, look how hopeful it is. We will be reconciled to estranged loved ones. Relationship issues will be solved. Our financial stresses will be fixed. We're going to win the lottery. All hopes and all of our problems are going to be cleared. And look at the line. 100% good results in nine days. Not even great results. I'll take 100% good results in nine days. 
oh my gosh, this card is so hopeful. Now, I am not wanting to unpack um, psychic practices, the validity of psychic practices or astrology. That's another conversation for another time. What I want to lift up is the dimension of hope that is offered here because it's very, very different than the hope promised in the text from Romans. The hope that this card appeals to, and it is our most common way of thinking about hope, is tied to a desirable outcome, something we want in the future. Now this facet of hope that is future-oriented and is focused on the resolution of our struggles is necessary. We need it. It directs our actions and our resources and our values and priorities. But a hope that hangs only on a particular set of circumstances coming to pass has its limits. Let me say that again. Hope that hangs only on a particular outcome has its limits. What do we do when the marriage falls apart? or the health of our loved one declines, or God forbid we lose them? What do we do when the baby does not come? When all of our problems are not cleared? What is hope then? And as a justice-loving people, as we set our sights on and march toward that time, when justice will roll down like a river, how do we live in the hope and wholeness that is here right now and in the present moment and is not dependent on future fulfillment? The text from Romans speaks of a hope that is not directed toward a far-off or future reality that is available to us in the present moment. And this hope does not depend on our suffering or our struggles being resolved. In fact, the hope in the text is born of our sufferings. The hope is born of our sufferings. I'm like Mary, how can this be? How can this be? Now, in asking this question about how suffering gives rise to hope, I don't want to imply that God sends us our struggles to teach us a lesson or so that we can extract a gift from them. Even the gifts we may receive as we endure pain and loss do not justify suffering. But, but, Suffering and death are a central part of our faith story, are they not? And Paul is mining the wisdom of how even suffering, even our struggles, may give rise to hope. And so I want to look at another teacher among us today who is also mining this question of the relationship between suffering and hope. 
Steve Charleston is an elder in the Choctaw Nation, and he is the former Episcopalian Bishop of Alaska. And like our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, he too senses the rampant anxiety of our times. And in his 2021 book, Ladder to the Light, he speaks directly to the collective uncertainty that we all are feeling. And he believes that the Native American experience has a very unique witness to offer us. And he's not promising to fix things in nine days. He is very, very clear that the hope that he is talking about is not wishful thinking. I want to share a passage with you from the book about the hope that his tradition and ancestors have to offer and where that hope comes from. My ancestors did not survive the Trail of Tears because they were set apart from the rest of humanity. Their exodus was not a sign of their exclusivity, but rather their inclusivity. In their suffering, they embodied the finite and vulnerable condition of all humanity. They experienced what the whole tribe of human beings has experienced at one time or another throughout history, and that is the struggle of life, the pain of oppression, the fear of the unknown. Their long walk was the walk of every person who knows what it means to be alone and afraid. But they walked with courage and dignity because they had the hope of the spirit within them. Even in their darkest moments, they kept going. They kept climbing. Why? Why? In the harsh winter of their greatest struggle, they looked around and saw others walking beside them. They knew that they were not alone. They knew the spirit was in their hearts every step of the way. With that faith and with the blessing of each other, they embodied the one force no oppression can ever overcome, hope. To step over the threshold of our own fears, we must today be willing to do what the survivors of the Trail of Tears did, embody hope. I'm so struck that Charleston lifts up that their suffering and the accompanying grief was a portal into a wider sense of belonging, not only to each other, but to the seamless web of life surrounding them, both past and present, 
Their walk, he says, was the long walk of every person who knows what it means to be alone or afraid. They experience strength in their vulnerability. If we turn back to Vivek Murthy's prescription for what we need in this tenuous time, here are his words. It's to be a nation that is kind, where people take care of each other, where people step up for each other because they can and because they know we are all better off when, in fact, we are all better off. I want to be, us to be a nation where people are generous with each other, where they recognize that there are times that all of us are going to be in need, where all of us may stumble and fall and help each other up. Friends, he too is calling us to find strength in our vulnerability, in our mutual vulnerability. Now, for those of us, like myself, who come from the dominant culture and have been schooled in the survival of the fittest, in the myth of the rugged individual, in the tall order to just power through, or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. These invitations to recognize our mutual vulnerability and the strength of that could sound like salvation, or it could sound like poppycock. Maybe even like, let's sing a round of kumbaya, and in nine days, all problems will be cleared. But the messages that we have internalized about self-reliance and self-help and independence and rising above the rest, and of course then there's the capitalism beneath it that sustains all of this, all of these messages separate us from one another and they neglect the wider bonds of our belonging. They are, these messages, a recipe for loneliness and isolation, and in difficult times, potentially despair. Friends, it's hard to feel hopeful when we are apart from each other. That's what these voices are saying. We are part of a vulnerable communion, and it is not something to overcome, but to be reverenced and sustained by. So the gospel truth is, we cannot go it alone, nor do we have to nor do we have to. We are all more human, we are more ourselves, we are more loving when we belong to each other. And I wonder, I wonder if this could be a dimension of the character that suffering may call forth from us. A character that opens us to intimacy with life, with one another, and the spirit.
I think this fraught time is calling us back to a way of life characterized by connection. Stephen Charleston said they had hope because they looked and saw one another walking, but he also says they knew the spirit was in their hearts every step of the way. They embraced a sacred reality. They dwelled in what I have heard called the commons of the soul. Isn't that beautiful? The commons of the soul. For them, all reality was infused by spirit. And all things are tangled together in a sacred web and flow of life. And they carried the rituals and the stories and the traditions and the patterns of instruction that upheld this luminous and expansive vision of reality. I feel like Debbie Downer on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> because don't we live in a society with little regard for matters of the soul and spirit? Isn't that the case? We tend to organize our lives primarily around earning a living, don't we? As if earning life is something we have to do. But think about the patterns of our days and how much they are organized around earning a living. If you're a child, it's around preparing and getting the skills you'll need to earn a living. And then in midlife, we earn that living. And then if we're lucky, in our later days, we focus on securing those earnings, and we may get to enjoy them a little. One author I read said that we have turned the sacred ritual of life into a routine of existence. A routine of existence. But our souls, our souls know they are meant for a bigger, more imaginative, more compassionate, more creative life and vision of reality. And when it feels like the bottom is falling out beneath us, we need a vision of reality that is vast enough to bear us up on the breath of dawn. We need the expansive immensity and height and depth of the sacred reality that Beatrice of Nazareth wrote of. And she didn't just think that up. Listen to what Paul says about this reality in the book of Colossians. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Christ is before all things, and in Christ, 
all things, all things hold together. This is the scope of the loving reality that has been poured into us and is vast enough to sustain hope. So what is this hope like, this other dimension or facet of hope that I'm talking about that may come to us even through our suffering? It may show up as a lightness of being, even a joy that transcends our circumstances. It may show up like that, a lightness of being that transcends our circumstances. It may be an experience of being met and accompanied by a presence that surpasses our understanding and gives us the power to keep going into a future that is both unknown and certain. It may show up as a presence accompanying us. It also may come to us just as a deeply felt bodily sense that no matter what, all will be well. However we experience it or describe it, this dimension of hope is subtle, but it is unmistakable and it will not disappoint, and it is contagious. In the opening of his book, can I get an amen? I'm going to back up. In the opening of his book, Charleston issues a challenge saying that in this time of uncertainty, we can fight with each other. Thank you, Fran. In this time of uncertainty, we can fight with each other and knock each other down trying to get to the emergency exit. That's one option. Or we can embrace this moment as a period of deep spiritual formation. So what that, might that formation look like? Vivek Murthy says it starts as simply as smiling at strangers and seeing what that connection may do. I'm gonna put this interview in this week's In Touch, a link for it, so you can read how he unpacks this and all the other things that he prescribes for us right now. In David's last sermon that he preached in June before his travels began, he talked about four forming practices. He said, don't pathologize rest. Take a digital Sabbath. Go outside. Take a break from work. And plan meals with family and friends. And drink the good wine. All of these things, can you hear how they invite 
disconnection so that we may connect and go deeper with one another and the larger world and feed our souls. Zena Regis, two weeks ago, invited us to see the incarnate Christ permeating the ordinary moments of life. And last week, Katie echoed the invitation to rest in a love that longs to hold us. To this wonderful list of forming practices, practices that might bring us together in our mutual vulnerability and belonging and also into a deeper reality, more sacred experience of life. To this list, I'll add, become apprentices of our losses. Turn toward what we fear most and toward the shelter of one another. Grief and loss are natural experiences of being human, not simply things to get through. See what meets us when we take their yoke upon us and learn from them. See where we are on time. So, I acknowledge that the risk is that this could all just be poppycock. That's a possibility. Or it could be just what we need. It could be just what this generation needs. It could be what this planet needs. Those willing to follow after the ones who have walked the trail of tears and have a song of hope to sing. This could be just what we need. It could be what is needed is those willing to follow the one who walked the road to Calvary and revealed the heights and depths of love. It could be. in the singing of the anthem today. And so as our summer singers come forward, I want to tell you a little bit about this anthem and the songwriter. Zach Sobiak was a teenager and songwriter from Minnesota. And he embodied a lightness of being that transcended his circumstances. When Zach was 14, he was diagnosed with a form of osteosarcoma. And a few years later, his doctors told him his cancer was terminal. And that's when Zach decided to write a handful of songs to say goodbye to his family and friends. 
And the song that was most popular went viral first in Minnesota, then in our country.